Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello again, my friend, and welcome into the Stream Police Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I talk about movies and television from my closet just outside of beautiful Columbus, Ohio, every month here on this show. And in a little bit, we'll be hearing from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak. He brings you uh, his takes on music from his uh, home studio there, beaming it out from beautiful Cleveland, less beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. we got a lot going on this month. I, uh, I urge you, as always, to go over to... Uh, Instagram and TikTok and find me at Mr. Clint Davis. Andy is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak and also uh, subscribe on YouTube at Overdue Review. That's where I'm at. And uh, I got to tell you that next month, this is going to be like, you're going to probably not even care by that point because, you know, October is the month where everyone just wants to watch scary shit. And nobody really cares. Like, as soon as the calendar flips to November, it's like no one wants to watch anything scary anymore. And for whatever reason, I'm not really like that. I'll watch horror movies all year long. Uh, just kind of, you know, that, that's just the way I am. I, I love the genre. So I'll kind of always dip into them whenever I want to. But a lot of people don't. But next month, I'll be hitting on Midnight Mass on Netflix because I'm only one episode into it by right now. Haven't had enough time to, to burn through that thing yet, but... I mean, I, I love uh, the atmosphere that's being set in that first episode. I'm intrigued. It doesn't feel much like horror to me. It feels more like a character drama. But obviously, I know Mike Flanagan. He'll he'll be uh, scaring the shit out of me in no time. Uh, I've watched enough of his stuff to to know that. And also, you know, I mean, the the uh, Emmys were last month. Not that I don't put a whole lot of stock into those anymore. But am I? I gotta ask you. Am I gonna have to watch? Am I actually going to have to watch Ted Lasso now? I mean, I just feel like I had that. I had a subscription to Apple TV Plus for a year, a free subscription for a year because of something with our phone, like we had Verizon or something. I don't remember what it was, but we got a year of Apple TV Plus. Never. The only thing I watched on there, I watched like two things. I watched the uh, interview that Oprah did with Elliot Page, which I talked about here on the show. That was the biggest thing I watched. And then I also watched about half of the series. Um, God, I don't even remember the name of it. It was it was uh, narrated by Paul Rudd. It was a nature show. 
And it was like about very small, like insects, like the tiny world. And of course, you know, they had Paul Rudd doing it because of Ant-Man. So it was like a nature documentary, but on the smallest, most micro scale. And it was pretty cool and funny. And, you know, I mean, it was well done. So I'm a freak for nature documentaries anyway, so I'll watch them no matter where they are. But that's all I watched on Apple TV+. Plus. I didn't watch The Morning Show. I didn't watch any of Ted Lasso. I didn't watch that show with Jason Momoa, which the name of the series escapes me now. I didn't watch anything on there except for those two things that I just told you, one of which the name I don't even remember. And I did watch some of the old Charlie Brown stuff because they're like the exclusive home for the Charlie Brown uh, specials now. So that was my extent of my experience with Apple TV+. Plus. For whatever reason, it's like there's just too much out there, and there just wasn't enough pulling me in except for Oprah making me want to watch Apple TV+. Plus. So I don't know. With Ted Lasso being such a a cultural uh, touchstone now, is that something I'm going to have to get into? I, I just don't I don't know if it's for me. I love sports, but Jason Sudeikis, he wears pretty pretty quickly on me and the kind of upbeat stuff doesn't necessarily like that's not necessarily what I'm looking for when I want to sit down and watch a show as bad as that sounds I'd rather watch Deadwood or something if I'm like something that's really going to bum me out um, if I'm being honest and Beth always gives me flack my wife for not being she says I'm not up on the zeitgeist enough whatever that means so it's almost like you know, when a show is really hot like that, it makes me want to watch it a little bit less. And that's weird because I host this show and I've been doing this show for years and I've been, you know, talking about television on this show for years. And 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 certainly I've kept up with shows that have been big deals as far as being really popular series. I mean, I talked a lot about Game of Thrones on this show during its run. Um, and that was the biggest show on TV, you know, at the time. So it's not like I'm averse to anything that's popular. I'm not like that. But if I'm not into a show, like the fact that it has caught fire is not going to be something that's going to make me want to get into it. And that's why, like, it's been out for a month now, but I'm not, like, I don't have any thoughts on Squid Game yet. I haven't watched that. You know what I mean? That's been the biggest, like, hottest show everyone's been talking about, you know, number one on Netflix for almost a whole month which is crazy for a non-English show, non-English language show. And, uh, you know, that I, I'll, I'll probably check that out because I like that kind of stuff, um, that kind of dystopian. I like Battle Royale and I like the Hunger Games and stuff like that. So I might check that out, Lord of the Flies, obviously. Um, but I haven't watched it yet. Like, it didn't make me go, I got to go watch the show. So Beth is on me because she says I'm not... I'm not up on the zeitgeist. I'm not connected enough. I don't have my finger on the pulse enough. But that's not really what this show's about. So if that's what you were tuning in for, like you wanted to hear my take on Squid Game, then I'm sorry, but I don't have it this month. So maybe in a month I'll bring it to you. But I am going to tell you about the many saints of Newark. I'm going to give you my thoughts on that coming up in just a bit, which is uh, hot right now on HBO Max. So that's timely. So it's not like I don't have anything. Also going to be giving you my takes on the best horror movies that are streaming right now across a bunch of different platforms. I'll be uh, picking them out for you. I'll be giving you ones from different kinds of genres. So it's not just one kind of horror. So if there's a certain type of horror, like if you like body horror, for instance, I'll have a few for that. If you like foreign horror movies, I'll give you those. If you like ones that are more like thrillers, less with the gore, more with the thrills. I'll give you some of those. So we'll have some of that coming up 
in just a moment. And like I said, uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Andy in uh, in a little bit. He's actually going to bum you out this month, and it's not because he's going to be like uh, eulogizing someone who died, which he has done many, many times on the show, and we kind of call him the undertaker of the Stream Police podcast. He's in charge of the homicide uh, division at the Stream Police, if you will. Um, he'll actually be talking about songs that just kind of will bum you out. So I don't know if this is going to be the most uplifting episode, but hey, it's October, man. It's starting. The weather's starting to get a little bit gloomy and everyone wants to get scared and everyone's thinking about death right now anyway. I mean, who isn't with COVID, but with Halloween, that's just the way it is. So uh, this is just going to be one of those shows, man. Buckle in, strap in. It's going to be going to be a lot of fun. I do have a lot of streaming recommendations loaded into this episode. Movies, um, especially so. Get your, like, pen handy if you're old school or have your notes app on standby because uh, I don't want you to forget these because I'm going to be giving you a lot of streaming recommendations this month, more than I even usually do. And on this show, I like to give you a lot of them. So uh, let me go ahead and light my stogie, get things started as I always do. Like I said, I sit in my closet in Columbus. I like to light up, get it nice and smoky in here. Here we go. Now we're good to go. And every week, every, I should say every month on the show, it's been a long time since we did it weekly, long, long time, uh, every month on the show, I like to do, to kind of open the show with the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. See, even the title of that segment goes back to when the show was weekly. Uh, but every October is when I enjoy it maybe the most, that segment, because I kind of changed the greatest TV show theme song of all time into the scariest TV show theme song of all time this week. And a year ago, we did the Munsters, and the year before that was the Adams Family. Before that, it was Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So a lot of good kind of horror television shows being honored in the month of October in this segment. We're going to do the same thing this month. But now we're going to go with something a little fresher this time around, because if you notice something about those three shows I mentioned, they all were like in the 1960s. So a little before your time, I'm guessing, um, we're going to go back to 1995 when a series of creepy books for kids were all the rage at middle schools across the country and a TV show based on them kicked off on Fox. Does that tune bring back cherished memories or does that one completely go over your head? Because I just don't think there's another option. Honestly, I'm talking about the theme song to Goosebumps, the TV series, which was a horror anthology series aimed at kids based on the Goosebumps books written by the legendary R.L. Stein, who is a Columbus native. Got to give him a shout out here. Uh, and the show actually originated in Canada, which I thought was weird because Stein, you know, like I said, American. And the books were huge hits in America. It's not like these were just hits north of the border. But the show originated in Canada and was also shown in the United States, but it was produced in Canada. And that's where the man who composed this theme song is actually based. He's based in Canada. His name is Jack Lenz. <laughs> 
and seriously, I don't want to just, I don't want you to think I'm just going for cheap nostalgia here from my 90s childhood. That's not why I picked the Goosebumps theme for this month. I legitimately think that this is a triumph as far as a theme song goes. It just fits what the whole franchise is all about when you hear this song, right? It's definitely, like, it's chilling, and the Goosebumps books were, I mean, they were creepy as hell. They weren't just, like, you know, harmless kid stuff. Like, they were, some of them were pretty freaky, the ideas behind them. I mean, it was like the Twilight Zone kind of thing for young adults, and that's what this show aimed to be. The books could freak you out a little bit, and this song could freak you out a little bit if it came on at night when you were all alone, which it did for me when I was a kid. But it's got a pulse, right? It's 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 moving. It's got a beat and a pulse to it. And Goosebumps was all about youth, really, and and the things that terrify tweens and people in their early teens, especially. So I just think it nails that. I just think this song has got youth in it. It just sounds like youth to me. And it's a total product of its era. The song is just like the books. I mean, it sounds like it came out of the '90s. This song is '90s as fuck. When I looked into Jack Lenz, because I always like to do a little bit of research on who composed the song I'm talking about every time I do this segment, I found out that he's actually, I guess, a pretty big deal in his native Canada, in the world of like TV, film, music composition anyway, especially TV. One website actually described him as a, quote, Canadian music icon, end quote. Now, I don't know about that. I don't know if he's like up there with Brian Adams or Celine Dion. But I guess people do know him, and he's scored dozens of TV shows up there, especially some children's TV shows. And he even did some of the music that was featured in Mel Gibson's big blockbuster Christian epic, The Passion of the Christ, which was a huge, you know, uh, money-making train back in the day when it came out. So some of his music was featured in that, for what that's worth for you. But it's the Goosebumps theme, with its bouncing beat and its creepy electro sounds that uh, I, I think is is his magnum opus, if you're asking me. It honestly is fit to be the beat for some terrifying gangster rap song, right? Like something by like Tech 9 or Hobson or something would have used this and rapped over it. I just think it would have it would have killed me. And this song just honestly bangs. <laughs> People love the song, too. I found several versions of the Goosebumps theme on YouTube that stretch out well over an hour. There was one that's 10 hours long. It's just the song. This song is a minute long. It's a minute long song looped for 10 hours. And it's on YouTube. I mean, can you imagine? Like somebody sat and made that. I mean, I'm sure it probably wasn't that much work. But still, somebody thought like this is something the world needs. 10 hours of the Goosebumps theme. And you know what? If that's something you want to listen to, I honestly cannot blame you. If you want to throw that on while you're at work one day and just have the whole shift go by while you listen to the Goosebumps theme, can't blame you one bit. Goosebumps. Goosebumps the series ran for four seasons on Fox from 1995 to 1998. It, was, it ran as part of the Fox Kids block that was on Fox for a while. And uh, it made episodes of some of the franchise's most classic books, uh, the Haunted Mask, which was actually the first episode 
of the series. Uh, Revenge of the Lawn Gnomes. They made Say Cheese and Die into an episode. And the scariest of them all, Night of the Living Dummy, which I honestly could not even keep a copy of in my room because the cover freaked me out too much with that stupid ventriloquist dummy on it. If you know what I'm talking about, then you know. If not, Google it. Just scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. I remember seeing it on the shelf at the book fair at my school. And like, man, that was like, no, I'll, I'll check one of these other ones out. I'm not, I'm not doing all that. Goddamn dummy. It was great stuff though. Uh, the show was, and, and the show, was it a straight rip off of Are You Afraid of the Dark on Nickelodeon? Sure. Of course. But it had a better theme song. And that's why Goosebumps is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Viewer beware. You're in for a scare. I'm telling you, a straight banger. Throw that thing on at the Death Row Records office back in 1992 or 3, and somebody's going to put a hit on it. I mean, it's going to end up on the chronic or something. I'm telling you. It's just got that juice in it, that 90s juice. And there's just something about it. It's just, it's it's a killer song. Great opening. And then you got the dog barking too, which is another really cool part. And Viewer beware, you're in for a scare. I mean, that's great. It's cheesy as hell, but there's just something like Vincent Price about it that I really, I love. I just think, I think they knew what they were doing and it's phenomenal. It was Goosebumps. How could you lose? So Goosebumps may or may not have been your bag back in the day. And if you aren't into horror, then, you know, I I don't have a lot for you this month. I guess you want to skip ahead to get to Andy's segment because next up I'm going to be talking now about horror movies streaming across the web, all the streaming services. I've got picks from all the major ones uh, that I think you should check out right now, whatever you have a subscription to, ones that you should add to your list. So like I said, get that notes app handy, get that actual notepad handy if you're really old school. And uh, I'm going to give you some picks for what I think are the best horror movies streaming right now across the web. And like I said, I broke them up into different types of movies. So it's not just like a bunch of slasher movies. It's not just a bunch of gory shit if you're not into that. So I've got, you know, something for a little bit of something for everybody, I think, here in my picks. So let's start out with some thrillers. I see dead people. Not that these are, these are definitely not like wimpy movies, but these are the movies that I like to pick out for people who aren't like they they act like they're not horror fans but they like stuff like that that gets their pulse going a little bit that freaks them out a little bit puts them on the edge of their seat you know like the sounds of the lambs and stuff like that prototypical uh thriller territory the sixth sense movies like that so i got a few thrillers for you here uh i'm not gonna overwhelm you i'm gonna give you five picks out of each genre. So I got four genres for you. I got five picks. So I've got 20 movies here for you that I'm going to run down. Uh, and and here are five thrillers that are streaming right now for you that I think you should check out. If you've got Netflix, first off on Netflix, I'm going to give you 2007's Zodiac, uh, a modern day classic. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show before. Uh, it's David Fincher, and it's right up there with the absolute best of anything that he's done. This is one of those I I said it last month, slow burn is one of those phrases that has been run into the ground. People use it on things that are not even slow burns. They just use it to describe things that are boring, I guess, until they're not boring all of a sudden. Then it's like, well, that was a slow burn. It's like, no, that was actually just like an example of shitty pacing. Uh, But some things really are slow burns. 
And Zodiac is one of them. This is a movie that uh, I remember going to see in theaters. It's almost three hours long, and I remember just being engrossed, uh, you know, in this movie from start to finish. I thought the performances were phenomenal. It's Robert Downey Jr. at his absolute best. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal. This is a movie about journalism because really it was journalists in San Francisco trying to crack the Zodiac killer case along with police officers. You got guys like Mark Ruffalo in it as well, Brian Cox, um, Elias Coteus. I mean, some truly Chloe Sevigny, Philip Baker Hall. It's got a phenomenal cast from start to finish. And I think the way that he did the movie, because the Zodiac case is is notoriously unsolved. It's one of the great unsolved mysteries of uh, American criminal history. Uh, and so the movie doesn't really try to do anything that history hasn't already kind of sussed out. So I just think it's a it's a phenomenal movie. Like I said, I think it's Fincher at his best, and it is pretty freaky. Um, but I think this is very suitable movie for people who aren't really into horror movies, who don't like being scared, because it's not a movie that's loaded with jump scares and stuff like that. It's not even really like Seven, because I think Seven is borderline horror uh, in a lot of places. Zodiac is even, I don't want to say softer, because it's certainly gritty and grim. But it's, it's not, like, going to make you jump out of your seat like Seven does. And it's not going to really gross you out like Seven does either. But the atmosphere is heavy. And uh, it's just a good piece of noir and a good piece of uh, of thriller filmmaking of the last uh, couple of decades. Really, like I said, a, a modern classic. Zodiac streaming now on Netflix. Check it out this month. If you're not necessarily into horror, as, you know, horror is by the books. Another one, an all-time classic. If for whatever reason you've never watched it, Jaws from 1975. I mean, who hasn't seen Jaws? It's like the original summer blockbuster. It kind of reinvented the way movies are presented uh, to the public at large. You can thank Steven Spielberg for that. But it is really just a phenomenal movie. And Jaws, the shark at the heart of the movie, is a terrific and terrifying villain. And the scenes of the families at the beach and somebody all of a sudden bobbing up and down in the water and blood coming into the water. It's just so well done, and it completely changes the way you'll think when you go out swimming, which is crazy for a movie to do. I mean, this was the movie that a lot of people said it made people not want to swim anymore, and that's like, I mean, how can you get a bigger compliment for a horror movie than that? I mean, so many horror movies are about like, well, don't go out at night you know, alone in the dark and, uh, you know, cause you, some serial killer might pick you up or something like that. Uh, but Jaws is like, don't go swimming at the beach. And it successfully made you scared of swimming in broad daylight at a public beach because it is that well made of a movie and that scary of a movie. And it takes a lot of notes from Hitchcock. So it's classic thriller territory. Roy Scheider, when was he ever bad in any movie? I'll tell you the answer. And it's never, and this is really his signature role. Richard Dreyfus is so, like, you love to hate him in this movie um, as kind of the, he's kind of like a wild egghead scientist uh, who goes along and, and is trying to hunt down Jaws with Roy Scheider, who's the police chief of this, this beach resort town, and, of course, Robert Shaw, who's the professional shark hunter. He's like the Captain Ahab of the story. It's just really got it all. And uh, it's a gorgeous movie, so well made. And it's, it's Spielberg really at his best, which is some of the best 
mainstream movie making you're ever going to see. So check out Jaws right now on Netflix. If for whatever reason you never got around to it, it is not overrated, I promise. I like to think we've built up something by now. If you think like, oh, everybody recommends Jaws. Everyone talks about it. Everyone's seen it. It's so played out. It's not, man. Jaws is really good, and you you deserve to see it for yourself, especially on Netflix because you get to see it in beautiful high def. I'm going to give you a weird one now, a thriller that's on HBO Max. If you have HBO Max right now, Stoker. This is one that kind of went under the radar a little bit from 2013. It's a psychological thriller, and it was directed by the Korean filmmaker Park Chan-wook, who is the guy who did, uh, this was the first English language movie he did. He's the guy that did um, the legendary um, Vengeance trilogy, which included Old Boy from 2003. Everybody knows Old Boy. Um, you know, if you're into kind of dark filmmaking, if you're into Asian horror and stuff like that, not that Old Boy's really horror, but it's such a, that movie is so crazy. I rewatch that one like almost every year because I just can't get over it. It's just pulse pounding. But Stoker is a really different kind of movie, but so weird. And it's got Mia Wasikowska in it, uh, who is just wonderful. She's very young in this movie, but so chilling. Um, and I wasn't expecting that because she was known best as for playing Alice in the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland uh, movies. So it was like, how is she going to be freaky? But she really was. And Matthew Good and Nicole Kidman as well. Just a really... I'm telling you, a really weird and uncomfortable um, movie about family dynamics, and there's so much like weird sexual tension in this movie, a lot of Hitchcock influence again, so I recommend you check out Stoker, because I really think it will creep you out, um, and it's just hard for me to describe it without ruining a lot of things, so uh, cool movie, very well made, very well acted, and very unique. Check it out on HBO Max right now. It's called Stoker. Uh, also in the thrillers category, for the people that aren't necessarily in love with, with classic horror, I'm going to give you Funny Games, uh, which is on HBO Max right now as well. Now, this one might push your boundaries a little bit because you might think that it's too weird. It's an art house movie for sure. But this is the English language remake of um, the, the 1997 version of, you know, a movie of the same name uh, that was actually done uh, in Austria by the director Michael Haneke, who I'm a huge fan of, love pretty much everything he's ever done. But he actually redirected this one himself. So he did the English language version himself. Uh, and it's a shot for shot remake. So everything that happens in the 1997 version happens here, but it's in English. Um, and it's just, this movie is such a wild ride. I never get tired of it. I got to tell you though, it's one of those that the first time I watched it, I felt like I almost hated it, but really what it was, was I was wanting it to follow certain patterns of movie making that I had become used to. And this movie so just is not interested in following the patterns of filmmaking whatsoever. Like everything you think it's going to do or should do. It doesn't happen in this movie, and, and things come out of nowhere, and it, what it's about is a home invasion, so it's the classic kind of home invasion setup. Naomi Watts and Tim Roth play this, you know, kind of wealthy couple. They're at their summer home out in the country, and they've got their son with them, and these two young guys come over to their house saying that they're friends of their neighbors, and they start asking them for feathers, like asking them for eggs, and you know, just kind of hanging around, making weird conversation. And then from there, it turns into this nightmarish home invasion story 
uh, with these two boys. Um, and I call them boys, but they're really like, I think they're like old teenagers, maybe young 20, something like that. Uh, and they're just sadists. And it's a, it's a freaky movie, but it's really not gory um, at all. But it is very upsetting, I will say. A lot of very upsetting things happen in this movie. So Funny Games from 2007. Watch it now on HBO Max if you want something that really will unsettle you and shake you up. But not necessarily really gory, like I said. And it's not a slasher movie. Um, so that's why I put it under my thrillers category for people who want to see thrillers. And one final one for you, uh, the thriller fans out there streaming now on Peacock and Tubi. So this one's for free. If you want to watch it on Peacock and Tubi, you'll just have to sit through a few ads. Uh, the movie is called an American crime. And this one came out in 2007. Also, this one stars Catherine O'Hara. I'm sorry, Catherine Keener. Catherine O'Hara would have been really funny. Uh, as a <laughs> casting choice for this, that would have been really grim. Catherine Keener, who is so dark and terrifying in this movie. Also, Elliot Page, a young Elliot Page is in this movie, and both of them do really good work. This was a kind of an indie uh, one that not a lot of people saw when it came out. It was directed by the guy that did Ella Enchanted, which I think is hilarious because this movie could not be more different. It's so grim, but it's based on a true story. It's based on the the really infamous case out of Indianapolis from, I think it was in the 1960s or 70s, of this young girl who was tortured and murdered in the basement of this house. And it was done by a bunch of neighborhood kids who would come over and like have fun with her and they would take turns torturing her and doing all these awful things to this girl. And one of the boy's moms who owned the house, who's played by Catherine Keener in the movie, is the one that like supervises it all and kind of in, leads it all to happen and uh, keeps the girl, um, you know, locked up, basically. So it's just a totally, completely fucked up premise, an awful um, movie to kind of sit through, but really kind of fascinating filmmaking as well because of where they go with this thing. So if you want something, again, upsetting, uh, thrilling, and terrifying based on a true story, which is the scariest part of it, uh, an American crime from 2007. There's a lot of stuff going on in this. Um, a lot of themes of what comes into play here. And a lot, it's a feminist movie, I think in a lot of ways, even though it is written and directed by a man, at least co-written by a man, directed by a man. Um, it, it is a lot of ways, I think a feminist movie and a commentary on, uh, what certain people think, uh, you know, are, is okay behavior for women and, and what kind of goes against the grain of what you expect from women. Cause I think the two main characters in this movie, both, uh, go into that. So it's a, it's a freaky movie. I watched it last year for the first time and it was, I was pretty unsettled by it. So there's some thrillers for you to check out Zodiac on Netflix, Jaws on Netflix, Stoker on HBO max, funny games on HBO max and an American crime on Peacock and Tubi. Patty, then what did Mrs. Banachewski do? She handed her the bottle and told her to pull up her skirt. And then? And then she said to put it up her. Did Sylvia say anything when Mrs. Banachewski asked her to do this? All she said was, I can't. What did Mrs. Banachewski say? She said, come on, you can do better than that. And what did Sylvia do? All right, let's move on to horror movies that are, I'm going to dub them exciting. Like, 
they are the kind of movies that are more like your your classic kind of uh, slasher movies. They're going to get your heart beating a little bit faster, and uh, you're going to be kind of you know just rooting for this the protagonist to get away from the killer and uh, hope that everything ends up all right. So these are the ones that kind of take you on a little bit of a more exciting ride than the ones that I mentioned in the thriller category, which were kind of a little bit quieter and a little bit uh, more just unsettling. I don't care who sent you. I'm the Lord of the Harvest. Let me start off on IMDb TV. So this is, again, this is free. So if you have the Amazon app, the Amazon Prime Video app, just search for the search for the ring, and you, it'll come up under IMDb TV. You don't even have to have a Prime account, and you can watch it with uh, ads again in HD. So if you if you for whatever reason you didn't watch the ring, I remember uh, Andy actually just not that long ago. I think he watched it for the first time. He hadn't seen it. Uh, and ended up being really impressed by it. And yeah, I've always liked this one a lot. I remember when it came out, really liking it a lot. And I remember going to see the sequel in theaters because I, I liked this one so much. But totally freaky movie. It came out in 2002. Uh, Naomi Watts leads it. And she, again, she's just always really solid. Um, and, and she really is the... She, she carries the entire movie from start to finish. But it was an English language remake of uh, a Japanese... Uh, kind of cult classic called Ringu. And um, it started off this whole like, you know, trend of American directors remaking Japanese and other Asian horror movies um, and and bringing them to America for the American audience. The Grudge was a notable one. And uh, The Eye was another one, Dark Water. There were a bunch of these that kind of came out in the early 2000s. But The Ring is really the best of all of them. And it's so well done. The idea of it is so freaky. Um, and I think it could still hold up today. I mean, a lot of kids now, you're not going to have any memories with VHS. But the whole idea of it is that there's this VHS tape that's kind of legendary. And if you watch it, you will get a phone call from no one knows who. And you'll get this phone call, you answer it, and it tells you that you're going to die uh, seven days after you've watched it. So like the countdown of your life is on at that point and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So it's a totally terrifying idea. And there's a lot of great visuals in this movie as Naomi Watts's character tries to unravel the mystery of what's on the tape as she kind of breaks it down frame by frame and tries to solve it for herself within the seven days that she's got uh, before she is killed from watching this. So she plays a journalist in the movie as well. Got a lot of journalism movies in these thrillers that I like, but the ring right now is streaming on IMDb TV. So like I said, check it out with the prime video app. If you want to watch it that way, it's free with ads. I'm going to give you one from Hulu now as well that you may not have seen queen of the damned also from 2002. This one is totally all about style. Um, it's Aaliyah. That's really the main reason I think you need to watch this because um, it's not a great movie, but it's a cool fucking movie to look at. And it is it, just watching Aaliyah. It, there's something chilling about it because she, uh, you know, obviously would die at a very young age and not very long after this movie would come out. And um, she actually, I think it came out after she, yeah, that's right. It came out after she died. So she made it right before she was, she died. And then the movie came out. So it was like dedicated to her and it was a big deal. And I remember it coming out back then and being just, it kind of feels otherworldly. It's like when you watch the crow 
and you got Brandon Lee on there and you know he died making the movie, and it just makes the whole thing a little bit freakier. So I think it adds to it. Uh, but Queen of the Damned is a really pretty cool gothic horror vampire movie with a lot of action in it as well. It's not the best one of all the ones I'm telling you about. It's probably the worst as far as cinema goes, but it's a cool movie still. Uh, good soundtrack, and like I said, uh, great visuals and uh, Aaliyah is just really, I mean, she's great in it. And she was kind of a one-of-a-kind entertainer. So uh, that is one for you to check out on Hulu if you're looking for something thrilling to watch in the horror genre. I'm going to give you also one of the all-time greats on HBO Max right now, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original from Wes Craven. 1984 it debuted, and I still think it's about the best of the slasher movies. Halloween is very tough to beat, in my opinion. But A Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, comes close. And I think it, it actually is scarier as far as the idea. I just, this was one of those movies that I remember watching pretty young, probably was too young to watch it. And it really kept me up and freaked me out. And I it just, some of the visuals in it, I think, are are fantastic. Whether it's the, the body bag, you know, dragging itself down the hallway at school, leaving the blood trail, or it's the girl being ripped apart in the air while she's trying to sleep and you can't see what's killing her, but she's just being thrown around the room and blood's flying all over the walls. And I mean, it's totally, the visuals in this movie are freaky as hell. Uh, and Heather Langenkamp is just, you know, one of the great scream queens ever. So it's cool to see her in this. And Robert England, of course, as Freddy Krueger, that goes down as one of the best performances in horror history. So check out A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, from 1984 right now, streaming on HBO Max. If you never got around to it, it's another one of those. Yeah, it's old, but man, it's tremendous. It's it's great. You got to watch it. Um, also, two, two more for you in the, the genre of kind of just being a little bit more exciting. On Netflix right now, The Conjuring 1 and 2 are both up there. And if you like ghost stories, uh, these are really good. Uh, I, I really enjoyed both of The Conjuring movies, saw them both in theaters, was kind of knocked out by uh, each of them. And I think what it comes down to is the, the main characters, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were these real-life kind of ghost hunters, this married couple who investigated paranormal events. And Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga play them in both of these movies, and they do a really great job in both of them bringing these characters to life. So uh, I just thought The Conjuring 1 and 2 both had their really scary moments, um, and both were really good. Both were about equally as good, I thought. Uh, so check them out if you're into ghost haunted house kind of stuff. That genre, you know, it's a little bit the, kind of the same tricks over and over again, but I, I really thought there was something fresh about the way they did it in The Conjuring uh, in both of those movies. So check them out on Netflix if you, for whatever reason, have never gotten around to those. All right, let's move on to gore and body horror movies. Now, this is the one that's near and dear to my heart. These are probably my favorite of all the horror subgenres. I love the more like practical effects gore that looks real, the better for me. The more I'm kind of like gagging while I'm watching the movie, the better I think it is. I just love, I love seeing what makeup artists are able to do in horror. And I think it's honestly the reason why I love the genre so much because they just go places that other movies would never even dare dream to go. And it's a lot of the work of the makeup artists that, that make it happen. So let me give you five picks out of the gore and body horror uh, genre to check out right now. First off on Amazon prime video and IMDB TV. Again, just search for it on your Amazon prime video app 
and you'll be able to watch it. 2006's remake of The Hills Have Eyes. This is a remake of the Wes Craven classic from the 70s. Uh, this is one that I thought was better than its kind of reputation is because I think the makeup in it is really, really well done. And the whole idea of it is just totally freaky. It's about a, a family that's kind of... Uh, out in the desert and their car breaks down. I mean, terrifying idea there. And they are targeted by these cannibalistic mutants and that they're totally mutated. I mean, these people are really freaky looking and the makeup department really went all out. And there's some terrible imagery in this movie. Um, but there's a, a an explanation in the universe that's given as to why these people are the way that they are. And I think it uh, kind of turns it into a message picture almost a little bit. But really, this is just an exercise in gore. And that's kind of enough for me. There's, there's no actors in it, really, that you're going to know or be necessarily interested in. And it's totally one of those kind of, you know, horror movies that you, you'll watch and maybe forget about. But I still think after all these years, I remember seeing it in theaters and the makeup really did freak me out. So if you love good makeup in movies, check out The Hills Have Eyes, the 06 remake on uh, IMDb TV right now because it's a it's a good one to watch. Most of these are on Amazon, by the way. Amazon's got a lot of good gore and body horror movies streaming right now for whatever reason. So uh, I'm going to also throw at you Hellraiser, the original from 1987, written and directed by the legendary Clive Barker. And this movie is totally freaky with its visuals, totally gross. Um, you know, a million sequels have come, but the original is just really tough to beat. It's so weird. And there's so much just strange sex S and M stuff. Um, but also just any excuse for Barker to gross you out with the makeup. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, about pinhead, that's the guy you picture when you think about Hellraiser and his great voice. I mean, him, you know, kind of yelling, and with that that voice that just sounds like a 30-year-old, or a 30-year, sorry, four-pack-a-day smoker kind of screaming at you. We'll tear your soul apart. Everybody remembers that. But there are a lot of freaky characters and creatures in this movie because they're like, you know, literal demons from hell basically that come out. Uh, and the whole idea of the movie, it's like, I've seen this movie probably five times. And I can't even remember like how it's all, like what the, what they're even talking about. It's like a puzzle box and it's from another dimension and it ends up in this house. And it's totally just like the, the, whole, the idea of it is so weird. But you just go along for the ride, take in the visuals and let yourself get freaked out. That's what Hellraiser is all about. And quote it because there's a lot of good quotes in it as well. Check it out right now on Amazon if you never watched the original Hellraiser. I totally recommend it. It's one of my... One of my Halloween favorites. Um, also, in the gore and body horror uh, category on Amazon right now, I was thrilled to see Dead Ringers is streaming there because this is one of those movies that I dearly love. This was one of those like white whale DVDs. We all, anyone who collects movies kind of has those movies that they're always looking for and never think you're going to find a copy of. And I found a copy of Dead Ringers like four years ago at a, at a bookstore. And I was like jumping up and down basically because it was unopened. And I've just loved this movie for a long time, but it's one of those that, like, I never talked to anyone who's ever seen it. And it's it's weird because it's David Cronenberg, so he's known for doing these kind of, you know, really freaky body horror movies. I mean, he's the guy that gave you Scanners and Videodrome and The Fly, which, you know, just some of the grossest movies ever to be made. But Dead Ringers is so interesting because it stars uh, Jeremy Irons in a really intense role. 
and he actually plays twins in the movie and they're they're it, these two like brilliant gynecologists who come up together and um, end up, you know, going to like, you know, the best school in the world and end up both being the two best students there. And everyone wants them, um, you know, they're like world leading researchers in the field of gynecology. And but anyway, what ends up happening is the, the two are so like joined mentally that when one's life starts to go one way and the others doesn't, um, it sends one of them into a depression and, and it turns into this really depraved movie um, as they they start experimenting with different tools that they're creating and using on patients without their consent and it's just it's a terrifying awful uh movie in which Jeremy Irons is totally into it and just completely like dead-eyed and freaky and just I love this movie it's a very unique body horror kind of thriller movie it is kind of more like a thriller there's not a whole lot of gore in it really but the whole idea of it I just think is so freaky and it comes from Cronenberg so that's why I put it in the in the body horror category. So Dead Ringers right now is uh, from 1988. Just streaming now on Amazon. It's one of those that kind of kind of hard to find. So check it out uh, if you if you get a chance or if it sounds interesting to you at all. On HBO Max right now, uh, one of the all-time greats in the gore category, 1982's Poltergeist, is up there for you. Uh, this was written and produced by Steven Spielberg, and it's got Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams in it, and of course Heather O'Rourke. Uh, the whole story behind Poltergeist, as far as what happened behind the scenes and the curse of the movie, with like different actors in the movie dying uh, at young ages and stuff like that, almost add to the mystique and make this movie even freakier than it is. But it doesn't need all that. I think Poltergeist is a really tight well-done, haunted house, supernatural, gory, practical effects masterpiece of a movie. And I think the story's good. I think the visuals are phenomenal. And it's just a very scary movie. It's just flat out a scary movie from 1982. Really, really well-done example of what you can do in horror that's not rated R, but is still very gory, very graphic, and, and frankly gross as well. But Poltergeist is a really cool one. Um, and check it out on HBO Max. It deserves to be watched in HD. It's a, just, like I said, a gorgeous movie. Uh, and I think you can see some of Steven Spielberg's production work on hand here because he was able to help get a massive budget for this. And it really works because horror a lot of times suffers because it's done on such a shoestring budget. Or that can be a good thing. Sometimes it suffers. But in this case, it was really a boon that they got such a big budget on this movie because uh, it just it looks like a million bucks and it's only adds to the terror. And finally, in the gore and body horror category, maybe the most gory, nasty movie that I can remember in modern uh, cinema history, Midsummer from 2019, directed by the great Ari Aster. This one uh, is streaming right now on Amazon. I think it's always streaming on Amazon, so you can always check it out there. But man, if you have the stomach for it, give this one a watch. It's one of those rare horror movies that takes place totally in daylight. Uh, and it's uh, all about a group of American friends who travel together to Sweden to this like secluded village to take part in a midsummer celebration that's held once every like century, and uh, they end up finding themselves unwittingly pulled into something that they are probably not going to come home from. So it takes a lot of cues from The Wicker Man, and uh, that's a great thing for me because I think The Wicker Man's a masterpiece, so... But it just cranks everything up, the gore, all that stuff, up to about 11. So 
if you have the stomach for it, like I said, check out Midsummer Again, slow burn, but really well done. Really impactful storytelling and great acting from Florence Pugh, which when is she not great? I mean, how can you beat Florence Pugh? You just really can't. So there you go. There's some gore and body horror movies streaming for you right now. The Hills Have Eyes on IMDb TV. Hellraiser on Amazon. Dead Ringers on Amazon. Poltergeist on HBO Max and Midsummer on Amazon. Finally, one final category I want to throw at you, and this is just foreign horror movies, or if they're not foreign, they're at least weird, kind of like art house horror. So if that's the kind of thing you like, if you like your horror a little bit pretentious, which I do, I'm not going to say that I don't like uh, my horror that way. If I did, then I'd be lying to you. All right, the first one I'm going to give you, it is streaming right now on Amazon Prime Video. It's called The Devil's Backbone from 2001. This is Guillermo del Toro. He wrote and directed this. This is early Guillermo del Toro, and uh, it takes place in the, during the Spanish Civil War in 1939. It's set in Spain, and it's about this uh, orphanage and kind of some weird supernatural activities happening at this orphanage, but it's about a lot more than that as well. It's got a really good story, which is kind of unique for a lot of horror movies, obviously. I mean, it's got engaging characters, and it's just uh, it's just a really masterfully done movie, and you can see why Guillermo del Toro's become kind of one of the all-time horror icons, and certainly one of the horror icons of this day. Uh, I was really impressed by this movie when I watched it for the first time, which was a couple years ago. So a little early Guillermo. Check it out. 2001's The Devil's Backbone. And it is a Spanish language movie for you. It's streaming right now on Amazon. Gorgeous movie. Very well done and very creepy as well. Uh, also on HBO Max streaming for you. This is, uh, again, art house foreign horror at its best. 1960s Eyes Without a Face. Totally freaky movie. Again, I'm going to give it the slow burn label. This is French language. Um, it's got some tremendous visuals in it, and it's uh, all about this surgeon who is like obsessed with the idea that he's going to give his daughter a face transplant because her face was horribly disfigured in a car wreck, and so he wants to make her beautiful again. And so he's like going to do whatever it takes to give her the face that she deserves, and obviously he goes to extreme lengths to procure a face and and try to give it to his daughter. And his daughter is just this kind of tragic, sad, terrible figure who is made frightening by the movie, but really her dad is the guy that is, uh, you know, just will freak you out so bad when you're watching this movie. But it's a really well-done movie. I was gripped the whole time. It's a tight 90 minutes. So check it out on HBO Max. It's called Eyes Without a Face, kind of a legendary French horror movie uh let's give you one from uh sweden which is one of my very favorites 2008's let the right one in this one was actually remade in english uh called let me in uh a couple years later so uh you know the the success that this one was ended up spurring an english remake and the english remake's good but i really like the the swedish version i think that just everything about this movie honestly works it's the the two main characters it's a it's a vampire movie that's not usually my thing, but I really love this one. It's about this young vampire. It's not really a young vampire. You know how it works. She's actually, you know, a couple hundred years old or whatever, but she looks like she's about 10 years old. And she becomes friends with this 12-year-old boy when she moves into his apartment complex. And he doesn't know what's really up with her, but he soon figures it out. Um, and they're just these two kind of loners, and they form like a nice, a really nice little romance um, and a really nice little friendship. 
uh, among outcasts. But there's a lot of gore in this movie, a lot of freaky stuff going on, and it's a really well thought out, well planned. The rules of the movie are well fleshed out, which I really appreciate in horror uh, as far as what you can and can't do as a vampire and all that kind of stuff. And I think they stick to them. And it's got one of the most satisfying endings that I can ever remember happening uh, in any horror movie. So I can't recommend Let the Right One In enough. It's one of my very favorite movies, regardless of genre. And it came out in 2008. It is streaming right now if you want to watch it on Uh, Hulu. So check out Let the Right One In. Another one that I really liked from a couple years ago, and this one is English language. So if you're not into foreign, but you want an art house horror movie, this one was overlooked from a few years ago. Uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer from 2017. This was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, and he's the guy that did uh, The Favorite, which was a big Oscar favorite a few years ago. He did The Lobster as well, which I wasn't as crazy about he did Dog Tooth, which was another really good one. But The Killing of a Sacred Deer is set in Cincinnati, which is cool. And they was shot in Cincinnati, and it makes the city look gorgeous as if it needs any help. Um, so that's one reason I really like it. But uh, it's got a really good performance from Nicole Kidman, Colin Farrell, Barry Kehogan. Um, all give really, really great performances here. Bill Camp, he's always fantastic. He's in this as well. Uh, and it's just, I really, everything I kind of like about this, I, and I saw it in theaters, and it really divided the audience. Some people were enamored with it, and others were like, that was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, and that's a great reaction, I think, for this kind of art house cinema. Um, but it is terrifying. It is uh, a legitimate horror movie for sure. Uh, more along the thriller lines, because again, not a lot of gore happening, not a lot of on-screen killing happening, but a lot of really unsettling situations and Barry Kehogan's performance is just on point. So scary. I loved everything he did in this. I don't know if what is happening is fair, but it's the, uh, the only thing I can think of as close to justice. Killing of a Sacred Deer from 2017. That's streaming for you now on Netflix. Totally recommend you give it a watch. If, if anything, just for the great scenery of the queen city that you get to see all throughout this. And finally, on Amazon Prime Video, I mean, it's the king of them all, The Wicker Man from 1973. It's streaming for you right now. So give it a watch this Halloween. It's so terrifying. The music is so, like, jaunty and fun and folksy. Uh, The visuals are so sunny and nice. Again, it's a horror movie that takes place almost exclusively all during the day, and the ending is legendary. It is just one of those movies where I think every part of it works. It's so unique. Christopher Lee is in it. Edward Woodward, uh, Edward Woodward does great work in it. Um, and Britt Eklund does one of the freakiest naked dances I've ever seen in movie history. Maybe the freakiest. So uh, the wicker man, phenomenal film from 1973. I love it. It's British cinema, quintessential British horror cinema and it's streaming now on Amazon prime. It's probably not everybody's cup of tea. That's why I put it in the foreign art house category. But if you like that kind of thing, I think you're really going to like it again. The ending tremendous. Nobody ever forgets the ending of the wicker man. Once they see it. So there you go. There are 20 movies streaming right now. Don't say I never did anything for you at Halloween, uh, streaming right now all across the internet, some thrillers, some more kind of exciting slasher stuff, some gory body horror and some foreign art house, weird movies, whatever you're into. I've seen every one of these. I like every one of these and I'm giving you, giving them my seal of approval and telling you to check them out right now. 
All right, and with that, I'm going to take a break, take a drink, send things over up to Cleveland, I should say, and let's hear what Andy's got going on. I told you, he's going to be bumming you out, I think, this month. So don't say I, I didn't warn you, my friend. When we come back, I'm going to be giving you my thoughts on HBO Max's The Many Saints of Newark, which I just watched not too long ago. So I got plenty of thoughts on that. It's coming up, and I'll also tell you about the best thing I watched this month and who it was a doozy all after Andy's done. So take it away, Mr. Sedlak. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, it's nice to see you again. Hope you've been well and that you're enjoying the fall season. At the end of the uh, segment, I'm going to give you five spooky songs to uh, to vibe to as Halloween approaches, like uh, Michael Myers hiding in the brush. These songs will creep you out. They are spooky songs, and you know there are entire subgenres of Halloween-related songs horrorcore death rap gothic metal endless novelty songs and songs by people that uh, you would not expect case in point right here That's Jimmy Buffett with Vampires, Mummies, and the Holy Ghost. It's a fun one. But even Captain Parrothead has songs that will work this time of year. But more on that later. Right now, we're going to shift into gear. As I speak to you, Casey Musgraves just played Saturday Night Live. She did two songs. Justified and Camera Roll, both from her new album, which is called Starcrossed. Starcrossed. As you may glean from the title, this is an album about heartbreak. It is a divorce album. It's a divorce album. And it comes in a long line of divorce albums. Everybody from Bruce Springsteen to Beck to Frank Sinatra to Kanye West has released them. Here is... Musgraves speaking about her own album. 
I think I just want to take everybody on the, um, the healing journey that I've been on. And, um, you know, this record for me was about looking at trying to transform my trauma, my pain into something beautiful. One takeaway I'd love for people to think about when they hear these songs is like, you know, we live in this age where we log on to social media and we see everyone's highlight reel. You know, we see all the good, the, the shiny, the happy. And um, you just have to remember that that's just not, it's not reality, you know. A divorce album is exactly what it sounds like. It's when an artist goes through a split in real life. And that experience is reflected in their work. They are concept albums with a unifying theme of loneliness, of, of regret and, and heartbreak and bitterness. Those are the things tying the record together. Musgraves herself was divorced last year. Word is that she is coming for me. That remains to be seen. I think when you hear this record and you hear the songs, you will hear that there is so much love in them, but you can't go through a divorce or heartbreak or life change without feeling the negativity too. And I wanted to honor myself as a creative and as a songwriter in um, giving all the, the emotions like the space to breathe. So I think that we all can relate to, you know, the breadwinner mentality. Um, women, I think, have been felt like they need to dim themselves to not overshadow their guy. Tell you it's gonna hurt. Stay away from a boy like that. He wants a breadwinner. He wants your dinner until he ain't hungry anymore. He wants your shimmer to make him feel bigger until he starts feeling insecure. I wish somebody would have told me the truth. Say he's never The fact is, as I speak to you, now in October of 2021, two of the biggest records of the year are breakup albums. One is from Musgraves, the other from Olivia Rodrigo. Her record was called Sour. And there's something about these records that sort of works with the COVID era and the hangover from the Trump era. So today I want to talk about divorce albums or, or breakup albums, whatever you want to call them. Odds are there's one that pops into your mind because many of these are classics and they've come to be viewed as major artistic statements. There are, look, there are so many, like Beyonce's Lemonade. Something don't feel right because it ain't right, especially coming up after midnight. I smell your secrets, and I'm not too perfect to ever feel this worthless. How did it come down to this? Scrolling through your call list. I don't want to lose my pride, but I'm going to fuck me up a bitch. Know that I kept it sexy, and know I kept it fun. There's something that I'm missing, maybe my head for one. What's worst, looking jealous or crazy? Or Beck's sea change.
And then there's where it all began with Frank Sinatra's album In the Wee Small Hours. This album from Frank Sinatra was released in 1955. Could probably be considered the first breakup album. That is a full record consciously put together to be a series of songs about loss. And and, and it was a hit. It's a hit because everybody, to a degree, can relate to loss. When your lonely heart has learned its lesson You'd be hers if only she would call In the wee small hours of the morning That's the time you miss her most Of all In the wee small hours by Frank Sinatra peaked at number two It was a big deal in those days. And it stayed on the Billboard chart for 18 weeks. His big, big, big album turned out to be one of the biggest of his career. According to legend, this album came at the end of a series of relationships. The first was his marriage to Nancy. That ended. He rebounded with actress Ava Gardner. She dumped him after he finished filming the movie From Here to Eternity. Good film if you have not seen it. But regardless, when the dust settled, he he was a two-time loser. His conductor, Nelson Riddle, said that it was the dumping from Gardner, from Ava Gardner, that really affected that album. Frank and Ava's relationship was volatile, even before their marriage began. In August of 1951, the two had been staying at Lake Tahoe when Frank attempted to take his life as a result of an argument the couple had been having. Frank took a handful of sleeping pills after drinking several glasses of champagne, though he was resuscitated by Ava before he died. Frank would go on to attempt suicide a few more times over the course of their relationship. Sinatra went on to record several more breakup albums with, <laughs> with titles like No One Cares. Where are you? Point of no return. And that's kind of the version of Sinatra that I like best. Just the guy who is beaten down, but he's still got a song. And there's a mystique there. And and I just, I, I go for that. By the time these albums came out, the breakup album, the divorce album, was a fully realized concept. Joni Mitchell put one out in 1971. She had broken up with Graham Nash and had taken up with James Taylor when she recorded it. It's not really my thing, this record, but it's commonly regarded as one of the greatest albums ever, certainly regarded as one of the best breakup albums. It's Blue by Joni Mitchell. I wanna be strong, I wanna laugh along, I wanna belong 
Bruce Springsteen put out his divorce album after divorcing actress Julian Phillips. Her most notable role was playing the love interest of Chevy Chase in the sequel to Fletch, Fletch Lives. Bruce Springsteen has been with his wife Patty Scialfa for decades now, but his first marriage to model and actress Julianne Phillips was significantly shorter and more complicated. Springsteen met Phillips in 1984 and they married less than a year later. Unfortunately, their relationship soon became emotionally distant. The seeds of disaster were present quite early as Springsteen went through a series of what he describes as anxiety attacks after the wedding, realizing that he wasn't ready to settle down. Their marriage was essentially over just two years after the wedding, and they finally divorced in 1989. In his 2016 autobiography, Born to Run, Springsteen places a lot of the blame about the way things went wrong with his marriage squarely on himself. Before Ski Alpha, he used to have a tendency to end his relationships after three years at most due to his difficult childhood, which rendered him unable to accept that his partners could genuinely love him. In his book, Springsteen expressed that he feels sorry about Phillips getting the brunt of his unhealthy attitude. He wrote, I deeply cared for Julianne and her family, and my poor handling of this is something I regret to this day. I failed her as a husband and partner. The boss used his own marital troubles as sort of a jumping-off point thematically. He explores the dynamic between men and women, identity, insecurities, everything within the context of a relationship throughout that record. It's a fascinating listen, and it's one of my favorites in his whole catalog, Tunnel of Love by Bruce Springsteen. I met a girl and we ran away I swore I'd make her happy every day And now I made her cry Two faces apart Sometimes, mister, I feel sunny and wild Oh, Lord, I love to see my baby smile And dark clouds come That record came out in 1987, the seminal album for the millennial generation, which I am a part of, has to be one that was released 20 years later. Kanye West's 808s in Heartbreak, the backstory. And there's always a backstory with these albums. West was dumped by his longtime fiance, Alexis Pfeiffer. She was in the industry, and they'd been together since before he put out his first album, The College Dropout. They had been together a long time. And while albums from Sinatra and Mitchell and Springsteen were noted for their introspection, West cycled between introspection and anger, which, when you're hurt, isn't entirely unreasonable. There's a track on the album called Robocop that is a perfect example. Straight up out of movies 
Listen, listen as he chastises his former flame. You spoil little LA girl. You're just an LA girl. You spoil little LA girl. You're just an LA girl. And you can't talk about divorce albums without referring to Bob Dylan's. Blood on the Tracks coming out in early 1975. It was regarded, it was recorded as Dylan's 10 year marriage to a former Playboy model, Sarah Lowndes, came to an end. The most poignant track on the record is called If You See Her, Say Hello. We had a falling out like lovers often will and to think of how she left that night it still brings me a chill and though our separation it pierced me to the heart she still lives inside of me We've never been apart. However, it's my opinion that Dylan's quintessential heartbreak album is not Blood on the Tracks, but rather 1997's Time Out of Mind. Every line drips with, with either mournfulness or desperation. The ghost of our old love has not gone away. Look it like it will anytime soon He left me standing In the doorway crying Under the midnight moon There are, there, look, you know, there are so many divorce albums so many heartbreak albums. Like Marvin Gaye's Here My Dear. Now, Marvin Gaye had been married to Anna Gordy. That's the older sister of Motown's Barry Gordy. It's likely a name that you've heard before. And and Anna Gordy filed for divorce. So she fought him every step of the way throughout this process. And, and perhaps rightfully so. Marvin was a bit of a mess at the time. But eventually they they agreed that she would receive half the profits from his next album. So what did he do? He wrote the album about their relationship and called it Here, My Dear. I guess I'll have to say this album is dedicated. 
dedicated to you Although perhaps I may not be happy This is what you want So I've conceded I would make you happy There's a lot of truth in it, baby I'll have any regrets, baby Things didn't have to be The way that was, baby You don't have the right to use a son of mine Keep me in mind Something I can't do without One of the more underrated breakup albums is called Get Lonely by the Mountain Goats. The Mountain Goats is basically a musician named uh, John Darnell and sort of a, a rotating cast of buddies. If you're a fan of indie music, Darnell uh, has, has probably been on your radar for some time. This album, Get Lonely, uh, came out in 2006, actually the, the year I graduated from high school. This track is called Half Dead. raining outside so I cleaned house today spent half of the morning throwing old things away try not to get caught try to think like a machine focus in on the task try not to think about what it The whole album is like that. Darnell was married at the time and is married today. Same woman. So not a divorce album, maybe in the technical sense. They apparently work through it. We cannot and therefore will not talk about breakup albums, divorce albums, without mentioning Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. The story has been drilled into the ground, but of the five members in the band... Four of them were couples when the recording of the album began. There was John and Christine McVie. They were married, and they divorced during the making of Rumors. They, the, the marriage broke up during recording. And then there was also Stevie Nicks and guitarist Lindsey Buckingham. They were dating, and they broke up during the making of the album. To make matters worse, Nicks hopped into bed with the fifth member of the band, Mick Fleetwood, the drummer. So the entire band, all five members, were engulfed in, in drama with a capital D. It is reflected in the songs. Go Your Own Way, The Chain, Secondhand News, Never Going Back Again, the album title itself, Rumors, the song You Make Loving Fun by Christine McVie, was about her new boyfriend, who happened to be the band's sound engineer. So can you imagine being John McVie, playing, playing bass on a song about your wife's new flame, who's also working with the band? 
I've always been a firm believer that much of the appeal of rumors uh, went beyond the music itself. That's not to take anything away from the musical accomplishment, but you have to understand that we were five people. Stevie and I had been a couple for a long time. John and Christine McVie had been married. By the time we got up to Sausalito to start recording Rumors, Stevie and I, although not quite as well-defined, were estranged, were not living together. We'd, for all intents and purposes, broken up. John and Christine McVie were divorced. And also you had three writers. So Stevie was writing songs, basically dialogues to me. I was basically writing dialogues to her. And Christine McVie was writing dialogues to John. So you could say that, that what we did beyond the music was, was really tap into the voyeur in the audience. Dysfunction and Fleetwood Mac would always be entwined to the point that just last year they threw Lindsey Buckingham out of the band. It's never ending with these people. And the dramatic lore remains the band's calling card, slightly above music itself. Everyone knew that, that these songs, the subject matter was what we were living. And I think that there was an investment in, in not just the music, but in the people who made the music. All of the albums discussed today, I recommend, except for maybe Blue. Again, Joni Mitchell... Not really my thing, but, but, but most people love her. And if you're in the mood to be a fly on the wall, the, these albums are vital. Casey Musgraves and Olivia Rodrigo and the thrill in the throes of recording breakup music are selling massive quantities of albums, at least for this era. And they're among the best reviewed albums of the year. Here's what it boils down to. Musicians are inspired by extremes. And what's more extreme than a divorce, personally speaking? Not much. You know, and I've also noticed that women tend to be better at writing about breakups than men, generally speaking. Aggressiveness sort of shadows the music coming from men, or, or, or the opposite. They tend to wallow in, in their misery. Women, on the other hand, they, they really don't do that. They're much more clear-eyed. The writing is more vivid, more concise. And I'll go back to Musgraves. God help me be a good All right, let's send this home. Friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify by searching Stream Police. Every month, we add five more songs. So if you haven't listened in a while, uh, there's some new music to take in, and, and you'll hear some old favorites as well. As I mentioned, with Halloween being around the corner, I'm going to give you five songs that fit in with that kind of spooky spirit. Some are actually spooky, some are kind of jokey, uh, but they're all going to make the most sense this time of year. First, 
It's Scream by the Misfits. Second, it's Murder in the Red Barn by Tom Waits. Then, Ghost Riders in the Sky, this version by the Highwaymen. And up the cloudy draw. Their brands were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel. Their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel. A bolt of fear went through him. As they thundered through the skies For he saw the riders coming hard And he heard their mournful cry Boogie Monster by Gnarls Barkley. Finally, if you're a longtime listener, you have heard this song before. It's the scariest song ever written. Full stop, no discussion. Recorded in 1995. It's a mix of trance music, industrial music. It's got some folk in there, even uh, influences of chamber music. It's a weird mix of shit. No description does it justice. You have to hear it. It's Farmer in the City. Farmer in the City by Scott Walker. Every night I must wonder why 
harness on the left nail keeps wrinkling, wrinkling. Then higher above me is stuff, right? Do you want to hear a little more of it? Just a little bit more? Okay, here we go. Harness on the left leg keeps withering and withering then higher That's all I can take. I got to get out of here. Guys, thank you. I appreciate it. We appreciate you guys listening. If you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us, boy, that'd be great. Thanks so much. Be safe. Be healthy. See ya. We always love doing the Halloween Edition. I think Andy goes for that too because I always like to do my uh, TV show theme song that's kind of a spooky uh, TV show theme song and he always likes to give you five tracks that are a little bit creepy and uh, nice picks. How often do you get to hear The Misfits paired up with The Highwaymen and Gnarls Barkley and then <laughs> you're going to finish things out with Farmer in the City. Wow. Um, a frightening epic if there ever was one. So uh, thank you very much, Andy. I'm actually I'm going to be seeing Andy here by for the next time we talk, my friend. Uh, we're going to be checking out Bob Dylan up in his neck of the woods in Cleveland. So uh, yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to it. All right, something Andy and I chatted about uh, off the air over the last month was our thoughts on the Many Saints of Newark, which is now streaming on HBO Max and. Uh, both of us kind of came away with the same reaction. The, the two of us, one of the things that we really bonded over when we were first becoming friends, we both have a great love for The Simpsons, especially about the first 12 seasons or so. 
And we both have a great love for The Sopranos. It was just something that we figured out together that we both happen to really love and we would talk about together. Um, and we've had many discussions about both over the years. So The Sopranos, obviously, The Many Saints of Newark is a prequel to The Sopranos, if you hadn't heard about it yet. it's the it, it tells the story of Tony Soprano as a young boy, but really the movie is about Dickie Moltisanti, who is the father of... Christopher Moltisanti, who was played by uh, Michael Imperioli in the in the TV series, played to perfection by Mark Michael Imperioli, sometimes annoyingly well played, uh, so much that you just wanted to smack the shit out of him sometimes. Um, I mean, there are few characters I can think of in TV history that I was endeared to, but also hated as much as Christopher um, over the course of, of The Sopranos. But anyway, this is about his father, Dickie, who was like a father figure to Tony, as we found out in the series. And, and the show revisits a lot of the, the classic characters from the show, um, in that kind of 1970s era where the movie is set. Um, and it tells a whole new story as well, as we really get to know Dickie and, uh, get to know about his kind of unique backstory, as well, his sordid backstory, I should say. But Andy and I were both of the same mind when it came down to it, and that we were both underwhelmed in the end by the many saints of Newark. And I don't think we're we're unique in saying that. Um, so I'm not going to act like we're the first people to say it, but I think it's a valid opinion. If you've heard that going around that the many saints of Newark is a little bit underwhelming, I think it's 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 safe to say because here's the problem. Anytime you are following up on something of the stature of The Sopranos, and there are few things in kind of modern American pop culture that have been as well reviewed, well, um, you know, just talked about in such glowing terms and have been so important in the history of like TV becoming this thing where great actors go to TV and do these kind of like movie epic like television series with high production values and tremendous acting and obviously uncensored storylines like The Sopranos was really the the forerunner of all of these prestige dramas that we have going on with these kind of Hollywood movie level casts filling them out. And the Sopranos kind of invented that. And the story of how the show came to be is just insane. If you've ever read it, like there's so many ways it could have gone wrong. It could, it almost ended up being on Fox, which if you could imagine on network TV, um, I mean, what a nightmare. I think about that sometimes. And as of someone who loves TV, it's like, that actually gives me nightmares. Like that happening would have been just <laughs> so bad. And I imagine all the things that have happened over the years, shows that were ruined, by going to networks and how great they could have been if they had ended up somewhere else. But thankfully the Sopranos ended up exactly where it needed to be. But the many saints of Newark here, now we are like, you know, 20 years plus since the TV show debuted. And we're about 15 years since the show went off the air with its kind of legendary series finale. So how could you follow that show up? You couldn't follow it up with a sequel really, because you know, James Gandolfini is dead and in the show, the ending is notorious for being, uh, you know, kind of left open to interpretation. And, you know, the prevailing wisdom is one way. And I, I want to give a bunch of spoilers away here, but the way that the series ended, it would have like you couldn't really have followed it up anyway. So I think a prequel was really the only way to do it here because a sequel would have undone a lot of the great things that I think that finale did. Uh, and it really did everything well. 
So a prequel was the only way to go. What happens is you've got uh, David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, comes back and he co-writes this script. So this is a story he wanted to tell because the, people were asking forever for him to bring the actors back and do a reunion and do another, you know, something. And he was always like, no, I'm not going to do that. That chapter of my life is over. Like, I don't want my whole life to be defined by The Sopranos, even though it's probably going to be. I mean, you can't really pick what your career is defined by, especially when you come up with something as brilliant and as well done and as long running uh, as that show was. I mean, it's just a masterpiece. So I don't think he should be worried that his career is tied up in that. I mean, this isn't this isn't something that he should be embarrassed of. I mean, this is a great gift that he gave to all of us. So anyway, his heart, what I'm trying to say is his heart was in telling this story. But I'm really confused as to why this was the story he really wanted to tell because I just don't feel like there was much here. And let me get into it in a little bit more detail. So The Many Saints of Newark is certainly a well-made movie. I mean, it's not one of those movies you watch and you're like, oh, the acting's shitty and oh, it looks terrible. No, I mean, it looks great, sounds great. It looks like it could have been on the big screen. Um, did I think it looked better than the TV series? No, honestly, I think episodes of the show looked better than this movie did. Um, and that's a compliment as much to the show as it is a knock on the movie because I think the show was just lit in a way that always made me so intrigued. I mean, it was lit in the same kind of way that uh, that The Godfather was, where it was just all this darkness and shadow uh, in so many scenes. And it just looked tremendous coming through on your TV and still looks great to this day. And the movie, to me, looked a lot more conventional than the TV show did. So I was a little bit disappointed in that. But it did look good, paced well, uh, it moved along at a great pace. Um, and that was almost a plus and also a negative because I just don't feel like the story had a whole lot to say. So I think it was just cutting around a lot because... It was like, why are we here is what I kept wondering uh, the whole time. At the end of the day, I think it just felt like your average kind of gangster movie, which is a, which is fine, but it's disappointing when it comes to picking up on a, a, a world and a universe that is so well done, well crafted, three dimensional and interesting to just do something average because The Sopranos could never be described as average. Everything was kind of moonshot. Uh, and trying something new and experimenting and uh, going deep below the surface. And this movie was not that way, I don't think. I, I just feel like this was kind of by the books, honestly. And that was what really surprised me. It felt a little lazy. I didn't feel like the story went anywhere. Like, I was halfway through the movie, and I'm sitting there wondering, like, where is this going? I, I just don't feel like we're we're going toward anything. Like, what's the point? here. And that is not something that I ever wondered about when I was watching the show. I always knew we were going somewhere interesting. You didn't always necessarily know where you're going to end up, but you were happy to be there. But I don't want to sit here and just compare it to the show the whole time. That's not really what I'm trying to do. I want to talk about the movie on its own merit, but I just didn't feel like this story really went anywhere. And I didn't feel like the characters were particularly worth this type of focus. I didn't think Dickie was all that interesting, to be honest. I was surprised he was the lead character. The soundtrack was tremendous. Andy and I both agreed on this. Uh, I just thought it was one kind of hit after another. Great music, and that that made me happy because the show was was very well known for having a great soundtrack. It, it introduced me to so many songs that I didn't know that would kind of play over the end credits and have now become favorites of mine. 
Um, and I just think they dipped into deep tracks so often. And this movie did the same thing. The soundtrack to it was 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 very well done. And the scenes that showed, because what happens in this movie and a major part of it is the city of Newark, the whole story takes place in Newark. Um, the city of Newark is like under siege, basically. it's There, there are riots going on in the city, and this is based in history. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's kind of all, it, it's kind of topical because it's all based on, you know, police brutality and, Black citizens in Newark are are like torching the city because they're trying to make their voices heard uh, and they're being openly disrespected uh, by pretty much everybody. So it's uh, it's got a little bit of that, you know, current event kind of thing going on, which was well done. But but I you know, I don't feel like it went deep enough into that to really grip me so much into like really make me wow you know i have a revelation about this that i had never thought about i don't think it's going to change anyone's mind on race relations but i am glad that it at least touched on a little bit because that was one place that the sopranos itself didn't necessarily hit head on i mean i think the show did definitely touch on race and it touched on identity a lot but sometimes you had racist characters and most of the characters in the show were racist but I don't know if the show did a great job all the time of showing you that like these aren't this isn't the way that you should be like it almost, you know, the, the show blurred the line so often between who you were rooting for and who you should hate. And I think a lot of people walked away from the show being like, yeah, I want to be like Tony Soprano and I want to, you know, say like racial slurs, basically. And, uh, you know, the kind of things that he would say about people who are not Italian, but especially about black people. And people would think like, yeah, he's right. And man, he's so cool. I want to be just like him. But really, you were missing the point entirely. That was what you took away. I think it was a little bit more explicit uh, this time around. But the rioting scenes were well done. But I just never got hooked by the movie in general. I actually did stop the film halfway through and finished it the next day, which is just crazy to me. I could not have imagined myself doing that. I rarely do that with movies ever. And I mean, episodes of The Sopranos, I wouldn't even do that on. So the movie, I was very surprised that I found myself stopping it halfway through and being like, yeah, I'll just finish this tomorrow. I'll wrap it up then. Because I was not hooked. Um, but again, I, I don't want to sit here and just be like, yeah, let's just compare it to The Sopranos. But I just think David Chase is begging you to compare it to The Sopranos the whole time because there are constant callbacks and references to the show. He is not trying to make this be something that exists on its own, of its own legs. It totally depends on the series, and that was one of the things that really let me down as well. There's so many callbacks to the show in the movie that it got really distracting to me. I mean, whether it's the nonstop name-dropping of characters that you knew from the show... Um, just so you knew, Hey, that's this character. Um, it, it's very distracting when you watch the film, you'll know what I'm talking about. Or if you've seen it, you probably know what I'm talking about or like lines that would become catchphrases in the show being used. Like there's one time when junior says that Tony doesn't have the makings of a varsity athlete. And he said that all the time in the series. And it kind of got on my nerves in the series, but then to hear it here on the movie, it was like, really? I mean, he was saying that like when, Tony was this young. I mean, it doesn't even really make sense. It was like they just wanted to work the line in so people would be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And it was, it just fell flat. Coach says I'm going to be starting. You don't have the makings of a varsity athlete. Constant. 
name dropping and line dropping and callbacks and references. And so how could you not compare it to the Sopranos? It seems like Chase really wants you to do that. Uh, one of the big headlines about the many saints of Newark is that one of the big performers in the movie is Michael Gandolfini, who is the son of the late James Gandolfini, of course, who played Tony in the series. And Michael plays the young version of Tony in the movie. So it's kind of a beautiful piece of symmetry to be able to get the guy's son to play him. Um, and it's real, you know, I thought it did add something because there were kind of looks and the way that he looks just in general, um, there are obviously the things that are kind of indelible that you couldn't have gotten from another actor that you could get from his actual son. So there was something kind of almost freaky about that, kind of otherworldly about seeing his son playing this part that, you know, he was just larger than life and he made an icon of television history. But I, I really appreciated Michael Gandolfini's performance because I think this had to be tough for him. I mean, he's a young, young actor, uh, just kind of getting his break in the business. His performance here is very different from his father's, which I think worked because in the show, I mean, Tony Soprano is this larger than life. He dominates every room he walks into total alpha male. Um, and in this show, in, in this movie, we're seeing Tony as a young kid who's straight. Obviously, he's not into crime. He's just a regular kid. You know, he likes listening to music, likes smoking with his friends. He likes doing stupid shit at school, getting in trouble. But he plans on going to college and, you know, maybe getting a straight job somewhere. So that's pretty much it. You know, he's got a girlfriend and all this stuff. So it's just like he's just a regular kid. So he is a lot softer in his portrayal than Gandolfini was um, because Gandolfini was just could be downright frightening in his performance, and that's not what you get from Michael Gandolfini. So I really appreciated it. I, I, my favorite moment, in fact, in the entire movie involved only Michael Gandolfini. It came during this short throwaway scene, really, that showed a young Tony lying in his room with his head down on the ground between two stolen speakers that his uncle had given him, in his bedroom listening to Mountain cranked up at top volume. And it was just one of those callbacks. The scene just made me smile, and it was one of those callbacks to the show that to me actually worked because it was subtle, but it also was a great reminder of the things that made Tony Soprano as a character really light up and music and like great sound. Or two of the things that he always loved and would mention at any moment, and he's always singing along with songs and listening to stuff on the radio, just a music nerd, basically, I think, especially a rock and roll nerd. So to see him doing that, to see his son doing that, I thought was really a night, very nice touch. And it also reminded me of AJ from the series as well, who would do the same thing, much to Tony's annoyance, because the type of music he listened to was different than than what Tony listened to. So that was a very nice moment. That was probably my favorite thing in the entire movie. Um, but Michael Gandolfini's performance honestly made me want a sequel to the mini saints of Newark, even though like you're hearing in this review, I was down on the movie a little bit. I actually want there to be a sequel because I just feel like that's where the journey would really get meaty. I think the ending to this was too abrupt for me and it just came out of nowhere. I didn't really see how this you know, particular story was going to lead to the Tony Soprano that we would know in the series so intimately. I just don't see him coming from this, this story. I don't know how it really links to him that much, but I think in a sequel, we could really get the threads going as far as what made Tony the man that he is when we start 
the Sopranos and we see him on a college trip, you know, choking out uh, somebody who had turned state witness uh, while he's also being a great dad and taking his daughter up to see colleges. So, you know, it just I didn't see that from this film. And like I said, the ending was just like, wow, that was it. You know, it felt like it was so rushed in the end. So I was kind of taken aback by that. It's not just the gambling, it's everything. The, the cherry bombs at the YMCA, letting the air out of Mrs. Russo's tires. I apologize. You talk big about wanting to be on a football team in high school and you're smoking already? Oh, you got to have a better attitude. But I will say the best performer in the movie to me, uh, even more than Michael Gandolfini, the most intriguing character as well, was the Italian immigrant named uh, Giuseppina. And she, you see her within the first five minutes of the movie and you basically can't look away from her every time she's on screen. The actor that played her was named uh, Michaela De Rossi. And I thought she was a brilliant piece of casting, very well done, totally original, new character made up for this story. And her story really could have used more focus and more time, in my opinion. I actually wanted to spend more time with her. I thought she had kind of the killer instinct uh, that the, it calls for when you're talking about a great crime gangster story like this. But I thought they kind of did her story dirty and it was over before it really needed to be. And then my interest in the movie went away a little bit when she was kind of gone from the film. So uh, that was sad to me. On the other hand, um, talking about interesting performers, Alessandra Nivola, who is actually the lead, he plays Dickie. I did not. I read a story when I was looking into this that Alessandra Nivola didn't even know that he was the lead actor of The Many Saints of Newark until halfway through shooting. And you know what? I totally buy that because I didn't know he was the lead actor either. I mean, he would see just bits of the script. So he just thought he was one of the, you know, many characters in this kind of ensemble picture, but he was the lead guy. And, you know, you're like 30 minutes in the movie before you realize, oh, yeah, he's the lead. Okay. Uh, he just didn't do very much for me. And I don't think that the character of Dickie was all that interesting and all that magnetic, especially to come out of the Sopranos universe. I mean, this isn't just... so. I mean, th this series gave us so many great characters that I can remember so many things about all these years after having seen the show for the first time. Um, but this movie just didn't have that. It was just totally riding on the back of the show. And... You know, it thought, well, hey, this is a guy who has some history in the show, so people will be interested in him. But I wasn't that interested in him. I was more interested in Giuseppina, who I would have liked to have seen uh, a lot more of. But I just, yeah, I wasn't crazy about Nivola's performance here. I also wasn't crazy about Vera Farmiga playing Livia Soprano, the mother of Tony, which really surprised me because I remember when it was announced that she was going to be cast in that role. I was thrilled because I like Vera Farmiga. I think she's a really good actor. Um but I just found her performance to be way over the top. Um, and I guess you could say that about the character in general, but I don't think she was played that way in the show. And I just, she was uh, irritating and over the top really in a way that I was not expecting from Vera Farmiga. Cause I've never felt that way about her in any movie that I've seen. Uh, but yeah, Giuseppina, best part of the movie did her a little bit dirty. I thought, I think she should have been honestly the lead of the movie cause she was the most interesting her and Tony were the best parts of, of the film. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so honestly, if you're wanting to know my recommendation on The Many Saints of Newark, I cannot recommend this movie for anyone who hasn't seen the show. So if you've never seen The Sopranos, 
I would say do not watch this movie because you're not going to get anything out of it. I just don't think there's anything for you here. I think it is totally for people who've seen the show and that's it. That's one of its biggest failures. Um, also, I the movie opens with this massive spoiler from the series in the first like two minutes, which stunned me. I was baffled by that because I'm like thinking about people watching this movie who've never seen The Sopranos or like being like, well, it's a prequel, so I'm going to watch them in order. I'm going to watch Mini Saints of Newark, and then I'll get into the series, which I could have seen people doing. But there's this huge, I mean, I'm talking about huge series-altering spoiler in the first two minutes of the movie that totally, like, takes away one of the craziest moments of the show, which comes late in the show's run uh, and spoils one of the most shocking things I've ever seen on TV in the first two minutes of the movie. So I was stunned by that. I don't know why they did that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, th this is just an example of, to me, a prequel, not adding anything of substance to the lore of what it came after. So it hurts me to say that because I'm a big David Chase fan. I'm a huge Sopranos fan, always have been. Uh, but I think the many saints of Newark just doesn't really bring anything to the table, but still, like I said, would like to see a sequel. Because I think the, the movie that comes out between after The Many Saints of Newark is the one that I would have wanted to see all along, watching Tony really become Tony. That, to me, is what I wanted to see. I want to see his fuck-ups. I want to see his early scores. I want to see how he gets close to Paulie and to, to um, you know, Big Pussy and to uh, Silvio and all the rest of those guys. I want to see, you know, his relationship with his father kind of, deteriorating de deteriorating even more in his relationship with his mother as well. I want to see all that stuff happening as he comes of age and as he becomes and gets into this life. And also I'd like to see the relationship between him and Carmela blooming a little bit more. I think that's the movie I wanted to see. I didn't want to see this stuff, which came a few years before that. I want to see what's the second movie in this series. So honestly, I hope they make another one. Even though I'm obviously down on Many Saints of Newark, I'm here like, give me another sequel, please, David Chase. Uh, I'll support anything he does. So even after a movie like this, which felt very pedestrian. So those are my thoughts on the Many Saints of Newark. Did you check it out? Did you watch it, Andy? Did you agree with Andy and I? We were just both kind of like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but I would, again, like to see a sequel. I think that's where the story really gets good. But the Many Saints of Newark is streaming now on HBO Max. It's going to disappear from there. But then it'll come back again in a few months after it finishes its theatrical run, uh, since that's the way they do their uh, new movies that come out in theaters at the same time on HBO Max. So check it out right now if you're interested. But again, I don't think it's for anyone who has not watched The Sopranos. I think it's it's a prerequisite that you've seen The Sopranos already because it's a huge spoiler for the show right in the first two minutes. No idea what they were thinking there, but they threw it out there. If I was home, I'd have given him a scaff he'd never forget. What do you think, Dick? You give him the best advice you can. You lead by example, he'll make the right decision. This kid's got what it takes. That's what I'm saying. We all do things like that when we're kids, right? Beat up the Mr. Softy man. My Christopher grew up to be like Tony. I'd be goddamn proud of him. All right, I'm not going to give you uh, my picks of light and dark things streaming now on Netflix, Prime, Hulu, and HBO Max this month just because I gave you that plethora of movies streaming uh, from the horror department all across all those services. But I still want to tell you about the best thing I watched this month before I send you out the door. And this month it was 
One of my very favorite movies. It's got to be in my top five. 1995's Heat. I rewatched it again. I pretty much watch it every year like Ritual, and it just never lets me down. If for whatever reason you've never seen it, it's not streaming anywhere right now except for the services you have to pay for. But you can find it on Blu-ray for like $5, which is crazy. The definitive cut, there's several different versions out there. Uh, but check out the Michael Mann definitive version. And uh, this is just, you know, to me, the crime epic of, you know, modern American filmmaking history. I just think, you know, it's three hours well spent. It's De Niro and Pacino at the top of their game. The entire, the whole cast is crazy. I mean, if you read off the cast, when you're watching the credits, you're like, oh my God, he's in this, he's in this, she's in this, she's in this. It's like one after another, just knocking you back. And, uh, you know, if you love movies like The Dark Knight, which ripped heat off wholesale, you're going to sit there and watch this and you're going to be like, oh, my God, The Dark Knight is like a remake of heat because it really is. It's like heat with Batman and with the Joker. So it's one of the reasons The Dark Knight is so cool. Um, so just just check it out. If you like heist movies at all, if you like crime movies at all and you never sat through heat, I don't know why you haven't. But uh, give it a watch. It's just so much about the duality. And the, you got these two characters with Pacino playing the cop who's obsessed with bringing down De Niro, who's this, you know, kind of lifelong, very careful, very methodical, uh, you know, heist man. Uh, and it just leads to uh, one of the great showdowns of the ages between the two of them. So it's 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 fantastic filmmaking. It's almost mythical at this point. But I love the movie Heat. Endlessly quotable as well. Can't beat it. And it's a gorgeous looking film also. Uh, That is the best thing I watched this month. And honestly, it might be the best thing I watched this year because it's pretty much the best thing I watch every year. You got something else on the side? Nothing regular. So you got something else on the side? No. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I don't know what you're doing. Remember Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say, you want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Remember that? For me, the sun rises and sets with her, man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Always love you coming around and spending some time with us here on the show, my friend. Uh, I want to thank my good friend Andy Sedlak for uh, his contributions once again this month. Always good to hear from you. And you can find us on Instagram. I am uh, at Mr. Clint Davis. Andy is at Andy Sedlak. And you can email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. You can email Andy at sedlakjournal at gmail.com s-e-d-l-a-k journal at gmail.com until next time my friend talk to you then and stream on even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.